We, we, we believe in, in women's ability to do ministry. There's something about the muscular part of it that, you know, she has to move this thing that bothers me every week. Volunteer to help that woman. Thank you, Carlene. This morning, we're going to attempt to get through 36 slides. Now, that may not sound like a lot to you. It's a lot. So if I'm lingering on a slide for more than a minute, just kind of scowl at me a little or something. The reason I want to talk to you today about the final solution, which sounds a little ominous, doesn't it? The final solution is what Daniel 8 is actually talking about. We get all sideways about this chapter in Daniel. We get caught just like the others, busily looking at the shiny objects, the scary things, the beasts and the images. And, and oh man, if we get a time prophecy in any, any sort of uh, a form within a context of a text, we get off on that time prophecy and forget everything else that was there. And this one has both scary looking beasts and a time prophecy in it. And so most of us have missed the entire forest here because we've been stuck on a couple of trees. And so today I want to back out and see the forest. I want you to see that next week, it's October 22, so next week appropriately we will be talking about Miller was right and Miller was wrong, okay? We'll worry about that next week. This week I want you to see this, this picture, maybe a, think, consider it a 40,000 foot flight over Daniel chapter 8 and maybe it'll be going by that fast. Um, I want you to catch the main point here. We've been through this passage this year already, and you, you've, you've heard some of the parts of this. If you were with us last February, we went through this passage. We talked about Daniel's feelings. We talked about Daniel in particular, how at the end of Daniel chapter 8, he's terrified. He's probably more disturbed than any other passage that we read in Scripture about Daniel. And it, and it pushes him into chapter 9 in prayer for the people of Israel. We'll touch on that briefly. But I want you to understand that the point that we're be, that's being made here today is that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. You got that? That's Romans chapter 6, but it's right here in Daniel chapter 8. Okay? So I want you to ride along with me as we try to figure this out. The final solution is, is initiated by a first cause. The final solution is, is in place as soon as there is a first cause. First cause, Adam and Eve in the garden with God. He tells them, there's only one thing you really have to worry about around here. Avoid that tree in the middle of the garden. Stay away from that thing because uh, if you go and hang around that tree, bad stuff's going to happen. In fact, if you eat the fruit of that tree, you are actually going to die. Adam and Eve end up doing the one thing that they couldn't do. Now, now for you and I, that's normal, right? Tell us something we cannot do, and we immediately start getting curious about that thing, right? You want to get your kid to do something, tell them they can't do it. No, you cannot take out the trash. No, forget it. That's my job. Leave it alone. Stay away from it. That's the only way. 
that, that, that sort of reversal of what actually you want to have happen, get, it seems to work with us as human beings because we're contrarian. We're contrarian. We don't do what we should be doing. We tend to do what we shouldn't be doing, right? So Adam and Eve, however, were not in the same messed up state of heart and mind that we are. They didn't have a heart with capital sin written on it, or capital S written on it. It didn't stand for Superman, by the way. It stood for sinner, brokenhearted, messed up, unable to do what is right on their own volition. They actually were given over to God. And so for them, this was a real choice without, without temptation. They went to the tree to investigate. And they ate the fruit of the tree... They set up a realm of distrust in God that we live in. They set in a realm, set apart a, a realm of sin that we live under. They set a, set forward a realm of death that we live within, all because they didn't trust God for a simple, simple thing. There's a lot of things you can do. Do anything you want. Just avoid that one fruit stand in the middle of the garden. You'll be fine. And that's exactly where they end up. And that's where our problem started. A final solution because of a first cause. Final solution because there was a first cause. Now I want you to catch the note. The sanctuary in the Old Testament. Do you know what that note we're talking about when we say that? The sanctuary in the Old Testament? Um, start in that in that uh, that Exodus moment when Israel's coming out of the of the uh, of the land of the of the Egyptians and moving toward the land of the promise. God sets up a system of worship for them built around a big tent. This big tent that He set up for worship for them is based a big rectangle, a sort of a rectangular uh, wall around an interior tent. And there are various items in this sanctuary that they would have recognized. This system, this rectangular shape, this burnt altar of burnt offering, this laver with the, with the water in it, this uh, inner sanctuary with the uh, presence of God in it, with implements, with bread and with, with, with light and with incense would have all been recognizable to them. They had seen it in every pagan temple around them. It was common every day. Everyone had one. The one difference was that there was a veil in the middle of theirs, actually in the back third of theirs. There was a veil of separation in the back between them and God. God had placed a veil between himself and them because of the sin problem, because of the first cause. They needed to be separated from God because for them to be in His actual presence would have caused their demise. For, for me to be in the presence of God would cause my demise because it was true that a sinner could not stand in the presence of a holy God. And so he designed this worship system for them that looked like everybody else's worship system. Everybody around them had the exact same design. They recognized this as church, just like you walk, recognize a steeple with a cross on top of it as church. It was the architecture of the day. He took what they understood and he said, let me show you one piece about that that's a little different. There's going to be a part of this that's a little different. 
There'll be a separation between you and I because of my mercy. Because I am merciful and loving towards you and I want you to not come to any harm. I want you to be as close as you can get to me without causing any harm. You got it so far? Okay, good. So track along with me. The sanctuary in the Old Testament is an exhibit demonstrating how God will deal with the sin problem. That first causal problem, Adam and Eve taking the devil's fruit and engaging us in a, in a world that is bound by death and sorrow and sin. We are caught up into this, this world where we defy God rather than trust God because of their first decision, because of their first cause. So now we're going to go into the book of Daniel. Remember we finished chapter 7 last week. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel's about 70 years old. He's given his own first vision of the future of what's going to happen. He sees this or something like this. He sees creatures coming up out of the sea. He sees a lion with wings. He sees a bear with ribs in his mouth. He sees a leopard with four heads and four wings. And he sees an animal in the background there with ten horns. And later he's going to see a little horn come popping up out of those ten horns, plucking out three as it comes up. As he was considering the horns, there was another horn, a little one coming up, and there in, his, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. We talked about this last week. We talked about this last week. And about this little horn that arrives on the scene. And we talked about how this aligns with chapter 2. The vision of Daniel chapter 2 that the king had. If Daniel's a new book to you, I apologize for rushing you through it. But I would like you to take a look at it in in this order. Chapter 2, read it. Read what it says about it within the text, within the chapter itself. Chapter 7, read it. Read what it says about it within the chapter itself. Chapter 8, read it. Read what it says about it within the chapter itself. I believe by the time you finish chapter 8, you will understand completely 2, 7, and eight, as far as the kingdoms are concerned. I'll show you why in just a minute. But these align with each other. The ten horns like the ten toes. The leopard with the four wings, representative of Alexander the Great and the Greeks. The, the uh, I'm sorry, the, the bear with the ribs in his mouth, representative of Medo-Persia. And the golden head, representative of Babylon. Four empires will rise. The last one will be divided. Ten toes, ten horns. A new player comes on the scene. This little horn power that plucks out three in chapter two or chapter seven. And God wins and his kingdom is restored. I told you in both chapter two and chapter seven, that's the story. That's the whole story. We get caught up in the images and the beasts and all that stuff. But in chapter two and chapter seven, the story is about the kingdom of God. We think it's about the kingdoms of the earth, but it's not. It's about the kingdom of God. We have a tendency to think that everything's about the kingdoms of the earth, even our own, but it's about the kingdom of God. The little fiefdoms that we set up on the planet won't last. Our little empires, our little kingdoms won't last. You can spend your life building an empire, and at the end of the day, it's the kingdom of God that matters. It doesn't matter what you spent your life doing. Unless you spent your life doing something eternal, it's all gone at the end. Big stone comes ripping out of the sky out of a mountain with torn out without hands and strikes the bottom of the image in chapter 2, grinds it into such fine powder that it's blown away by the wind. What matters is the kingdom of God, not any kingdom you and I have our hands on. 
Daniel is making a simple statement over and over again. It's saying God knows what's happening in the earth. He's got it all figured out. He's not surprised by your life. He's not surprised by the political life you live in. Very good news for us today, isn't it? We got an election coming up and boy, do we need the intervention of God. Somebody in this election needs a big time conversion. I don't know what's going to happen, but it's kind of scary looking past November, isn't it? We're, we're, we're looking at January 20th saying, can we just get another choice? Please, Lord Jesus. And here we are at a time when things are sketchy politically. And here was Daniel in a time when he's captured in another country away from his homeland. And he's told, I got this. That's all God is saying to him. He's saying, Daniel, I know you're in Babylon. I knew you were going to Babylon. I sent you to Babylon. I'm telling you what's after them is another kingdom and then another kingdom and then another kingdom. And by the way, when all of that craziness is done, I got this. I will come. I will take over. It will be my kingdom that lasts forever and the rest of this will go away. Blown away like chaff in the wind. So we arrive at chapter 8. Oh, I best better finish chapter 7. See, somebody should have frowned at me. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. What's he worried about? He's been told it's just like chapter 2. You're okay. God's going to win. He's worried about this little power that he saw that's attacking the saints, that's causing all this trouble. That guy. I like the artist's uh, conception here. Because most of the time you think of a little horn popping up on, on the head of some beast. You don't think, you know, little horn, what's the big deal? Little horn. I like this one because he kind of looks fierce and angry and cranky and stuff. Chapter 8 answers some of Daniel's questions about this little horn that he saw. The text now turns to Hebrew from Aramaic. The symbols now become clean animals instead of these interesting and weird things that he's seen before. They specifically focus on Palestine and the temple. So you get those three differences that happen now. The, Hebrews, the, Hebrews, the text becomes Hebrew. The symbols are clean animals. And they specifically begin to focus on Palestine. Now, can I just remind you, if you haven't read chapter 8, it's all explained except for one little part. Every bit of chapter 8 is explained This is not a, oh, I wonder what this means, prophecy. Because right within the text are the explanations. Chapter chapter 8, verse 3. I lifted my eyes and saw, and there was standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns. The two horns were high. One was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. It's a great description of the Medes and the Persians. It was a, a, a joining of two empires. The Persian wasn't really strong at the beginning. The Medes were stronger. They, as they came together against Babylon to conquer Babylon, the Persian Empire got stronger. Under Cyrus, it becomes, becomes dominant. In fact, if you check most history books, the Medes are forgotten in the discussion. But in, if you were in the times, if you were looking at it from Daniel's perspective, you would recognize it was two kingdoms joined together in an alliance to come against Babylon. Verse 20 explains what it is. The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. Any questions? Do we know who we're talking about? Did Daniel know who he was talking about? Absolutely. Completely explained. Here's what was coming after Babylon. Was this giant empire there in the, uh, the light greenish color? From Thrace, off in the west, all the way, you can't be on where it ends off the map there, goes all the way to the Indus Valley in India. 
They would eventually um, give up on trying to take Afghanistan should somebody have learned a lesson there. All the way down. And the big addition to their empire is that they, they take over Egypt. That's the big addition to the new empire. They finally conquer Egypt and hold it during the entirety of their empire's uh, involvement. Verse 5, and I, I was considering suddenly a male goat came up. So that was the first one. This is the second one. The male goat came up from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. It's a unicorn. You wondered if those were in the Bible. There it is right there. It's a unicorn. The explanation is in verse 21. The male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Any questions about who you're dealing with now? Would Daniel have had any questions? No. Now, does Daniel know about the Greeks? Absolutely he knows about the Greeks. The Greeks are this interesting power looming off in the West. It would be the Persians and the Greeks for the next, uh, it's a it's hundred years or more. The Persians and the Greeks will fight one another. Great, great battles that you've read about in history. Those, those Greek, uh, Greek historians writing about the, the, ba- the battles that, went, that took place between the Persians and the Greeks. The, he knew about the Greeks. The Greeks were a, a, a looming possibility in the future out there to be concerned with. The male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn is the first king. Who's the first king? Does anybody know? Alexander the Great. You want to read about some interesting things. Uh, read some of the background of Alexander the Great. Do you know Alexander the Great's mother told him he was virgin birth? Zeus, not his father. He was of the virgin birth. Very interesting. That the Greek philosophers and some Greek... Uh, Historians say that a great light appeared in the sky when he was born, and that night the temple of Diana burned to the ground, making room for a new god on the scenes. And Alexander would claim that his father was Zeus and that he was a a demigod of some sort for his whole short 33-year life. Who was the devil expecting to show up on the scene at any moment? Interesting, isn't it? The counterfeit is always waiting for an opportunity to step up. And there he was. Just a sideline. Alexander conquers Persia. You can see the track of his conquering. Number 11 down there was his worst mistake. He travels around known paths through waterways along places where his, his armies could get plenty of, of fodder and plenty of water. And he travels through all of those places. He gets down to the, to the end of his battles following 10 into the southlands toward the deserts and decides to march his army across the desert coming home and kills thousands of people. Because, I don't know, he was in a hurry. They could all run out of water, but guess who was going to have a drink? Alexander's not getting home dead. He, as you can see, captures all the Persian Empire and he adds Greece. You see, this little tiny spot over here on the edge. Oh, my pointer's not pointing. There it is. Wait. That's all that was added to the empire. Macedonia. And Greece, this little peninsula, the rest of that had been the Persian Empire. 
He does kick into a little bit of Libya over here, but in general, the only really important part he adds is his own home country. He doesn't last very long. In fact, the Bible goes on to describe the male goat grew very great, but when he, came, when he became strong, the large horn was broken in, and in its place, four notable ones came up toward the four winds. His, it was divided up among his generals. They tried to divide it up among his, his half-brother and his son, who actually was born after he died. But no one could make that stick. Those eventually get killed off. Verse 22, though, explains what happens historically. As for the broken horns and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. Four kings would come up after Alexander the Great, Cassandra, Antigonus, Seleucus and Ptolemy would divide up the country. This is where Cassandra, the strongest of them, was. Antigonus right here, the next strongest, got this sort of brown section. This yellowish section is Seleucus, and Ptolemy gets this section down here plus that little piece. And that little piece and this border became, become wars for the next several hundred years between the Ptolemaic kings and the Seleucid kings. Oh, I had it pointed at your side? Okay. You can see it across the room? Okay. On, for this side of the room. So Cassandra, this first guy, takes Greece. He's the strongest, so he takes the homeland. The next strongest, Antigonus, takes the Thrace and this brown area. He actually will end up giving that back. Cassandra will take it between Seleucus and, and uh, Cassandra. They'll run him out of, out of Dodge and take over this portion. Um, Seleucus takes this whole yellow portion, what would have been, been traditionally mostly the Persian Empire, and then uh, Ptolemy, would, Ptolemy would get this portion down here, and that little piece right there, that piece, and this border through Jerusalem become the, war, the battle zone for these two kings for hundreds of years. I want you to note that there's a little yellow spot in the middle there that, that encompasses Jerusalem. Jerusalem would go back and forth between these two kings. So the promised land would be fought over between these two kings. Read chapter 11. Would be fought over by these two kings for a long time. And finally, toward the end, as Greece becomes weaker and weaker, these guys find their independence. And for a, a couple hundred years, have an independent country there among the Greeks. Sort of this cushion between the two king, two warring, warring kings. Okay, I'm not even on to my main point yet, but you can understand that the Bible explains itself pretty well as we're going through chapter 8. As you read chapter 8, you, f you can figure out 2 and 7, right? Because 8 is explaining the different empires that will come. It's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. It's pretty explanatory. Verse 9. Out of one of them came a little horn. Now the discussion goes back and forth about whether or not it's one of the four winds or whether it's one of the four, one of the four kings. I want you to take you back to the map for a second. Do you see this over here? Do you see that Rome is a Greek colony? The Greeks have colonies on the boot of Italy. So if you want to argue that it's the wind, if you want to argue that it's one of the kings, I don't care because both fit. Either out of one of the kings or out of one of the winds and you can fight over it if you want rises another power. A little horn, which we saw in the previous chapter, which Daniel was frustrated with at the end of the chapter, which grew exceedingly great. Now, which direction does it grow? It grows southward. It grows eastward. It grows to the promised land. So it grows, for this side, southward, eastward, 
and toward the promised land. Okay? Out of them came a little one. He grew toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land, or the promised land. In the latter times of their kingdom, those four, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise. The little horn is called a king. A king shall arise out of them. This little horn down in the corner here is that king that's being described. Are you with me so far? Yes. Oh, good, because getting, it's getting confusing. This is the reign of Rome. Rome at its height controls almost all the arable land along the northern coast of Africa. Rome controls everything of the Persian Empire that was worth having. Rome controls the Egyptian empires of the south. It controls Judah. It controls all and more of what the Greeks had controlled across Europe and begins to make its way north all the way up to Brittany where it found itself fighting against some crazy Irish, Irish and Scots up here and said, that's enough built a wall and said, crazy people on that side, we'll stay over here. It's true. If you go there, there, there's still a wall right across there. It's not much of one anymore, but they built a wall right across the land to keep the Scots from coming and marauding in their, in their country. Think about how powerful the Romans were and how crazy the Scots must have been. And they were fighting in skirts. Whew, that was scary probably all by itself. But I want you to look at that empire and look at the size of it. Look at this next text. The text says, so he came near where I stood. One of the angels came near where I stood. When he came, I was afraid and I fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, the vision refers to what? The time of the end. This thing's going all the way to the end. Remember vision number one. A statue that stood tall and went empire, 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 divisions of the empire and a stone. Bam! End of time. Was the vision to the time, go all the way to the time of the end? Chapter 7, beast, 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 ten horns, all the division of those horns, and God will win in the end. All of these visions are pointing to a final solution. This one's going to spell it out. We're going to get to the last three slides. I promise when we get to the last three slides, I'll explain this to you. Maybe when we get to the last three slides, you'll already get it. Maybe you'll get it before I get there. This is what happens to Rome. Rome, in its political, empirical self, converts to Christianity in about the, third, or in, the, in about the 320s. And when it does, Christianity becomes the power that controls Europe for the next millennium. Christianity political becomes the power that controls all that you saw that was Rome before. Note, they get to Scotland and Ireland, but Western or Eastern Britain seems to have a problem. Christianity stays over there. The Welsh, my family, did fine. The Germans, other half of my family, not so well. But understand the scope of Christian influence in the world after Rome. Got it? So the little horn specifically makes him sick because it attacks the glorious land. Because it will destroy the mighty and also the holy people. These are the people of God. He will rise against the prince of princes. Who does Daniel know this is? 
He knows this to be a messianic statement. He will rise against the Messiah. So he's just been told, during the reign of this power, the Messiah will rise up, and this power will come directly in conflict with the Messiah. Does that happen? Hmm. Amazing how the Bible goes, isn't it? The daily sacrifice will be taken away. Do you remember what happened in Jerusalem in 70 AD? The temple was destroyed. The importance of the daily. We'll talk about it in a minute, but remember the importance of the daily. Remember that word. The daily sacrifice will be taken away. And then lastly, number five, the place of the sanctuary will be cast down. Did that happen? So here's what I want you to get out of this first portion. God knows what's coming. In your life, in my life, in the political realms of the world, God is not surprised. God never wakes up on a Monday and goes, wow, I didn't expect this to happen. God never wakes up, looks down at you and said, wow, I didn't expect him to have that happen to him. He's never surprised. Your best day, he knew. And he was smiling and he was celebrating and he was glad for you. Your worst day, he knew. And he said, man, I wish you hadn't made that choice. It's going to really make it harder for you for a while. He knows all of our lives from the beginning, from the first day he accepted you into the family. He knew you would embarrass the family. (laughs) And he let you in anyway. He said, I know these people. When they turn 21... Some of them are just going to go crazy. But I'll take them. We'll get past 21. Some of you remember 21. Some of you don't remember 21. Which is really sad. And God said, I know what their lives are going to be like and I'll take them anyway. And Satan, the accuser of the brethren, said, if you know what they're going to be like, what kind of crazy person are you? And God said, oh, crazy in love. That's what I am. Crazy in love with my children. And if you have children, you got a little taste of that. You know, you know when your children are born that they're going to embarrass the family. Right? You don't know, by God, what day it's going to happen, but you really don't wake up on the day that they do something really stupid all surprised. You kind of wake up going, I'm disappointed, but I'm not surprised. Right? But do you stop loving your children because they do stupid well? Nah. Neither does God. Neither does God. What he is saying in these giant prophetic sweeping pieces is I understand what's going to happen. I understand every single day of earth's history. I'm never going to be surprised. I completely am ready for it. And I'm telling you, at the end, I win. The prophetic books, Daniel and Revelation, have one message really to say at the end of the day. God wins. We get, we get lost down in the depths of figuring all the, the machinations of this out. And it's interesting and it's great and it builds faith, I think. 
when you know that God knew about Jesus and the Romans, when you know that he knew about the destruction of the temple, when you know that he knew that the Roman Empire would dissolve into something else that would last all the way to the end of time, when you know that God knew, it helps you to know that you can trust him for the things you don't know. Somebody hasn't been telling me I needed to hurry. Why is all this happening? What is it that Daniel hears? Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifice. Cast truth to the ground. He did all of this and prospered. Why? Because of transgression. Daniel's like, I'm sitting here in Babylon because of transgression. You mean we're going to do the same dumb thing again? And the God is saying, yep. You are. And you're going to be conquered as a nation again. Yep. Then the curious angel shows up. I love the fact that an angel is curious. Then I heard a holy one speaking to another holy one, and he said to that certain one who was speaking, did you love that sentence? How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation and the giving of the, both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? How long is all of this crazy, messy ugliness going to continue? Now remember, the sanctuary is an exhibition of God's plan for dealing with the sin problem. First cause, Adam and Eve. Continuous problem, us. Sin problem must be dealt with. Sanctuary is a description of how God will deal with the sin problem. Remember his first dealings with it. Because of you and your sins, because of me and my sins, sorry, you're on God's side, I'm on the other side. Because of me and my sins, God had to put a veil between us to protect me from myself, to protect me from my sins, because sin cannot dwell in the presence of a holy God. Moses proved that. Aaron's sons proved that. Our God is a consuming fire, and for sin to be in the presence of a, of a consuming fire means destruction of that. It means the end of that. So sin had to be separated from God so that God put a veil between us, a veil of mercy to separate us for our protection. You following all that? Okay. He said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. We're going to talk about this next week. It's October 22. It's an important day for us to talk about this. We're going to talk about it. The idea that next week, the sermon title next week is Miller was right and he was wrong. So that's what we're going to talk about next week. So we will get to this. I promise. I promise. Miller was right and he was wrong. Verse 14, 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. And the vision of the evenings and mornings which was told to you is true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. Now, two things have been said about this vision, about this thing. It refers to the end, and it refers to many days in the future. Something is coming a long way from here. It doesn't have to do with right now, but it has to do with something really important coming in the future. Something is coming a long time from now that you need to understand about. Uh, Know and understand it. The known builds... Faith for the unknown. You get to know somebody. They're truthful. They're honest. They're kind. They're gentle. And they ask you to borrow your car. And you say, sure. You get to know somebody and they're a thief and they're a criminal and they're a punk. And they ask you to borrow your car. And you say, no way. Why? Because the known feeds the unknown. The known in a positive sense, truthful, honest, good, kind, builds faith in the unknown. I'll loan you my car keys because I've seen the way you behave. God says, I, I understand empire, empire, empire. Lots of division, then some crazy little horn, and then I'm coming. And you've seen lots of empires, division, crazy little horn. What do we have left that's unknown? Final solution, right? 
What's left to be unknown is the coming of Jesus, the final solution. How will he deal with the sin problem? Our parents caused back there in the garden, going to the devil's fruit stand, eating from him and not trusting in God. How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation? The daily sacrifice, real quick. The daily sacrifice was a sacrifice that showed smoke rising up on the altar all day, every day. In the early morning at 6 o'clock, a sacrifice was made to cover the sins of the people for that day. In the evening at 6 p.m., a sacrifice was laid on the altar to cover the sins of the people for that night. The daily sacrifice was the umbrella of grace that holds over the people day and night. You could look to the sanctuary and know that the smoke rising from the altar had your back. The daily sacrifice is the clearest picture of grace in the sanctuary system, that that covering of God's grace was out there over all of us. Remember, the lives of animals do not save human beings, but the life of Jesus did, that this was pointing forward to the Messiah to come. It wasn't about goats and sheep and bulls. It was not about the sacrifice of animals. Animals don't save people. If that's true, then you can manipulate God by going into your backyard and killing a chicken. And you're just as pagan as everybody else. This was not a sacrificial system for merit. This was a sacrificial system pointing to the Messiah to come. That's why Jesus can be called the Lamb of God. Slain for the sins of the world. That's why in, the, in, the, in Revelation, the picture of Jesus has Jesus lying there, sitting there, lying there as a lamb that was slain on the throne of God. the desolation and the cleansing. Right now, I wish I had a trash can. The desolation and the cleansing. 300 evenings in the morning, the sanctuary will be cleansed. If you've been around the Seventh-day Adventist Church a long time, you've heard the word Day of Atonement. If you haven't, Day of Atonement is garbage day at the sanctuary. It's a day you take out the trash. Because during the year, people are coming and they're confessing their sins and the sins are being transferred by blood onto the sanctuary. And if the, priest, if the priest sinned, he, had, he would bring the blood in and sprinkle it actually on the veil itself and on the horns of the altar of incense. If there was a sin offering for the people, like the daily, that blood was taken in and sprinkled before the veil seven times and on the altar of incense. So the sins of the people were gathering up in the sanctuary. Trash was being piled in there. The trash was sin. The trash was metaphorical. But the just as true, the people were offering, their, offering before God a sacrifice to cover them for their sins. And once a year, God was going to explain the final solution. Remember, the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin is what? Death. And so God had to separate us by a veil from himself so that we would not incur the wrath that was the wages of sin. Not the wrath that was an angry God, but the wrath that was the wages of sin. The reality and, and normative process that God interrupted to give us mercy, to keep us from being consumed, to, to keep us from having the results of our own sin. He put a veil between us, a veil that represented His mercy, to protect us from that consuming fire that would destroy sin and those who held on to it with a grip that was white-knuckled. The wages of sin is death, but if you come to me and the sacrifice is made, that sin gets transferred away from you. It's no longer yours. It's taken away, and I take it upon myself. Metaphorically, in this sanctuary, once a year, the high priest would go into the sanctuary, into this exhibit hall of God's plan for dealing with sin. He would go in to take out the trash. He would go in to take out the trash once a year, 
he would go into the back, into the Holy of Holies, back here, but once a year and only once a year. Once a year and only once a year on the Day of Atonement, he would go into the back, back here, but beyond the veil. He would enter in beyond that veil with blood of the covering, and he would, he would, he would actually gather up the sins of the people metaphorically and carry them out. Take them away. Personal sin problem? Confess your sins on the goat. The sins are transferred, to, transferred from you to the sanctuary of God. The garbage collection. The giant garbage bin for sin. The, it's the dumpster. It's the sin dumpster. That for, for days and weeks and months, it's being dumped in there and dumped in there and dumped in there as people come and confess. Then once a year, once a year, once a year, stay once a year, once a year, he would go into the back. First, he would sacrifice a goat. It was called the Lord's goat. He would sacrifice this goat on the Day of Atonement and he would take the blood of that goat and he would cleanse, listen, he would cleanse the altar outside, the big altar, the big altar of burnt offering. He would put a little of the, of the, of the blood of the, that goat to cleanse the sin on that altar once a year. He would then go into the sanctuary and he would sprinkle some before the veil to cleanse that, that veil. He would sprinkle some on the horns of the altar of incense to cleanse the altar of incense. He would go into the presence of God, once again, finally gathering up the sins of the nation and carry him out. Now we have a problem. Our high priest is holding all of our sins. He's got garbage by the bags full, hefties, carrying him out. And as he comes out with the hefties in his hand, he finds the second goat. He lays his hands on the second goat. The second goat is placed into the hands of a, of a strong man, the Bible says, and he's taken out in the wilderness and released. Why? They don't kill it. They simply allow the natural wages of sin to fall on the goat. They simply allow the natural result of sin, death, to happen. End of story. How does God deal with the sin problem? Eventually, He removes the veil. Eventually, God says, I will no longer be separated from my children. And he comes out from behind the veil. And those who are still holding on with a white-knuckled death grip to their sin are destroyed with it. Not because of fierce, vitriolic anger, but because that's the normal consequences of sin in the presence of God. And the separation that has been His mercy all this time has kept that from happening. That's all. The only thing that happens at the end is God allows the normal consequences that He's been preventing all of this time to take place. That's all. Daniel chapter 8 says one day God will do what must be done. And there will be no more sin. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more death. For the former things have passed away. Our Father, 
finally ends the sin problem. In Daniel 8, no matter what else you take away, take away this peace. It represents that return of God's grace over the world. And it represents an end, a final end of sin. It's been right there in that sanctuary all this time. It's been right there in that little sandbox experience that Israel's been walking himself through. It's been right there, right in front of our eyes, when they took that goat out and let him go to die of the natural consequences of sin and allow us to see that that's how God brings it to an end. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are we are your family, messed up and broken as we are. Thank you for letting us be that that wonderful thing. We are in fact pretty broken and pretty far gone from what we should be. Thank you that you have a plan. Thank you that it is your intent to do away with sin. That our sins are washed away and are no more. And the sins of the universe, the sins of this galaxy, the sins first to last, will one day be gone and with them suffering and sorrow and pain and death. We look forward to that day with a mixture of sadness and joy. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Amen.